How many episodes have you done? This is episode 24. 24? Yes. Wow. And 26 will mark a year. A year? Wow. Yeah. I think it was April 31st, the first one, or some, some <laughs> funny number like that. Okay. Uh, well, that's impossible because April has 30 days. Well, I suppose we should start with follow-up. Absolutely. Uh, I... I haven't got an awful lot of follow-up just on the subject of dialects and languages, which we, which Alex and I talked about last time around. Uh, we were wondering whether there was sort of an official standard separating dialects and languages, and a little bit of Wikipedia-ing later. <laughs> apparently not. It says on the wiki page that there is no universally accepted criterion for distinguishing two different languages from two dialects of the same language. So, So there you go. And then as I was literally, like, as I was looking that up, I got a text from you. And this is before we knew that you were going to be guesting on today's show. <laughs> uh, and you pointed out that quotation about a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. It's, uh, it is a bit funny that I am on the show where I contribute one of the, one of the lines. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was by, who was that by? Was it by Joel? No, um... I don't know, actually. I can't remember. It was by, oh, I've just clicked the link that I put in the show notes. It was by Yiddish scholar Max Weinreich. I have no idea who that is. But, uh... So well, he's, a, he's a sociolinguist and a Yiddish scholar. And uh, he was talking about it in the context of Yiddish linguistics. Yep, makes sense. So, yeah, I'll, I'll put the Wikipedia link in the, in the show notes. But that's a nice little quote that you can drop in there. Absolutely. Although many languages, of course, don't have a army or a navy. Esperanto, for example. I suppose so. Yes, well, es Esperanto does <laughs> not attract too many flames by questioning the validity of that. <laughs> so that's on languages. And then uh, the only other thing was, we, I really don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but we talked briefly at the end of the, the last episode about text editors and plugins and, and things like that. We could spend a whole two hours, three hours talking about uh, text editors <laughs> and plugins. I have. It's funny because I am of, me and Alex, I'm the one who's more sort of passionate. I am the greater user of text editors and, and I am the one who has opinions about them. And yet it's always Alex who, who really wants to talk about them on the show. And I'm always the one sort of holding back and saying, no, there's, I don't think anybody really wants to hear a, a detailed discussion of the merits of, of Vim and Emacs. And to be fair, our discussion will be relatively short because we're both Vim users, right? And, uh... Indeed. Anyway, the only reason I bring it up again, despite promising never to bring it up <laughs> and spending 40 minutes on it last episode. So, so now that uh, Alex is gone, you have to raise... <laughs> <laughs> Just to say that I mentioned the, the Git plugin Fugitive for Vim last episode. It's very good if you use Vim and Git and haven't yet found this plugin, I recommend it. But I also recommend doing this other thing, which I've put up on my blog, which gives you a nice way to browse the whole Git history because Fugitive provides a really convenient method for looking at the history of a single file in a repository. But it's not so good for looking at the the history of the repository as a whole and all the branches and just seeing, you know, how a particular commit affected all the files in the repository. So I wrote a little thing that, that helps with that. And 
I've put it up on my blog. I make maybe one or two blog posts a year. So it's it's quite a rare event. So I figured I might as well mention it and stick a link in the show. A bit of fanfare to go with your with a blog post. Because right. <laughs> at that I mean at, at that rate of new posts, I don't really expect anybody to read it. At least this podcast comes out every two weeks. So, you know, I, I can use it as a sort of very analog RSS feed for my blog. Anyway, I should probably introduce you because I'm sure everyone listening is very confused. I don't know. Do I sound like Alex, maybe? <laughs> Alex mentioned last episode that he was going to be in Boston for PAX East showing off his latest game uh, that he's been making with Vito Backroom. Uh, so he's doing that. And he was hoping that he'd be able to do the show anyway, but I think that was an optimistic hope. So uh, so he hasn't been able to make it, and you obviously have listened to the show and, and commented on it lots of times, so you kind of know what it's all about, and we've been friends for a very long time. So We have indeed. It'll be nice to have you on. Thank you for having me. I did not expect ever to be on Station 13, but... Uh... <laughs> I know, I know. Brush of greatness or what? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so this is Tema, everybody. Tema went to school with me. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, I went to school with Danny and then I briefly went to, well, when we were at university, we were overlapping for a year and then uh, we were in Japan roughly for the same period of time. And then now we're both in the States. So it's almost as if I'm following Danny around. Indeed. <laughs> Yes, we we were united by our shared lack of any talent in rugby. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> when we both dropped the ball, and and that was when we were eleven, just as we started secondary school. At which point you, so you're originally from Japan. You're like the 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 inverse of me and Alex in a sense. You're originally from Japan, and you've moved to England. That's right. Whereas we we well, I was originally from England and moved to Japan. Well, you were originally from. I was, I was originally born in Spain. In fact, you moved to England before I did. Right. And you have lived in England longer than I have. So when we met, when when you were eleven, you had been in England for what six years or something like that. Yeah, and I, I moved when I was six, so five years. Oh, five years. I see. Okay, yeah. So yeah, and I'd been there for three years, I suppose. And then you were in. How long were you in Japan in the end? Five years or something. Actually, no, significantly shorter. Uh, four years? Four years. So, But you've got the, the initial six years on me. So, no, you've no, been that's 10 right. years so you have actually lived in Japan for longer than me, as well as England. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but you have been in, uh, in the States for longer than me, by about two months. Oh, yeah, that's true. And Spain by eight years. Yes, yes. I don't think I'll ever make that up. <laughs> so, um, you obviously, you listen to the show, and we, we talk quite a lot about our experiences of living in Japan and, and working there. And do you, how do you feel about that? Because you're in a bit of a funny position. Like you've, you're not quite coming from, from nowhere like we did, right? You're obviously, your first language is Japanese and you've grown up, even growing up in England, you grew up with Japanese culture. I remember when I went around to your house, you always had Japanese snares and imported that, games for it. True. And lots of manga on the walls and things like that. So your parents obviously kept the sort of Japanese culture within your house. So you, so That's true. Although I would say that both the snares and the manga were explicitly against the wishes of, of the parents. <laughs> of the parents, it was uh, def- definitely something that we managed to snuggle in. <laughs> That's impressive snuggling, considering how much space they took in your house. Yes, 
<laughs> so when you went over to Japan, did that feel like a sort of homecoming or did it feel like weird or or how you know how did that feel obviously you were going there as an adult which is quite different to being there as a child sure right? sure yeah i mean it was a bit of both right it's uh it's definitely the uk definitely didn't feel like home and it, it comparatively speaking japan definitely seemed there was a lot of things in japan that seemed more natural to me than despite the fact that living in uh i lived in the uk for 20 23 years i guess mm. Even towards the end, I was still thinking, you know, well, this is not quite how my culture does things, I guess. Right. And then I go back to Japan and there are things that seem very natural and then other things that seem really quite uh, quite unnatural. Mm. The inkan, the stamps particularly, I really find very, very unappealing because <laughs> really? that's that's one of those things like alex was saying when he brought them up a couple of episodes ago the first time and i remember this as well when i first got one of those the, the incan we, we have mentioned this before but it's like a, a little carved stamp with your your name on it and you use it in place of a signature in lots of official documents and things like that and for us that was a definite oh cool i'm in japan this is cool kind of feeling until that wore off about two weeks later <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then how, how many times do you ever actually actually use it? Oh, well, I used it every month. Whenever I got my paycheck, I had to stamp it. Oh, right, wow. <laughs> to to sort of acknowledge that uh, I'd received it and I'd checked that, you know, any days that I've been marked as being absent, I was actually absent right. and all that sort of thing. Yeah, my, my, my paycheck was accompanied by a register of of absence and presence, at, you know, which days I'd worked and which days I'd taken off sick or I'd taken as holidays. I see. Uh, which I had to confirm, which I have ne- literally until now not really thought about. But that's something I've never done in England or, or in yeah, America. Interesting. <laughs> well, for, for me, the experience was like, you know, completely front loaded where I, I set foot in the country. They tell me, you, you're going to make a stamp. I make the stamp and then I'm pressing it like three times a day for the next month. Yeah, that's true. Because you've got to open a bank account and then you've got to find a flat to stay in and, and sign contracts on that. And you've got to sign your work contract. There's quite a few things that need it. Hey? Absolutely. Well, basically everything that you that would require any paperwork, you have to stamp. Right. And that's a lot of stamping. Right. And if you make a mistake, then you have to stamp where you made where you cross it out and put your correction. Yep which I suppose maybe you didn't suffer from as much because I had the same experience, right? I arrived and, well, for the for the first week, I happened to arrive just before a holiday called Silver Week. Uh, so I, work was off for like the first week I was there. So I arrived, I turned up at the office and they showed me to the, the Wheatley Mansion, which sounds a lot fancier than it is. <laughs> In fact, I think I saw you on that first you, you did indeed. I was glad you, because you happened to, you weren't living there at the time. No. But you happened to be going, I think, on business for That's right. just like a, a week or something like that. And you had a day in Kyoto. Yeah. I, I was there in Japan for two weeks um, in, in Tokyo. Right. And uh, yeah, I spent a day in Kyoto. That's nice. Yeah, that was nice. And, and I was glad to have you because I had literally been dumped in this, <laughs> a weekly mansion is just a, a, a flat, right? A furnished flat that you can use uh, for for. A, short-term rental weekly rental in fact and uh, so i'd been shown the way to that and then then they said oh yeah and it's a holiday so we're not going to be here but we'll see you next thursday 
And so I had to sort of just find my own way around for five days, like knowing nobody in the city and knowing no Japanese, essentially. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very weird. But the day that you came was really good because you could sort of help me navigate and, and, and get around. So that was nice. Glad to be of use. So anyway, so then, then when I finally started work, the, uh, the office manager, a, a lady called Honda-san, who was extremely helpful, she took me to the bank to help me to open a bank account. And she, Well, first she took me to the income place to get an income, and then she took me to the bank to get a bank account and, uh, you know, helped me to look for flats and things like that. But when you go to the bank and you, you fill all these forms, they're very particular that you have to write everything yourself. Right. Not only the, the income, but like all the writing has to be done by you. And I was still not that well. I mean, I had been practicing writing kanji for the months leading up to moving there. But, you know, I'd never had to write <laughs> lots of sort of long form writing or anything like that. In, in Japanese. In Japanese. And so I'm having to like copy out the address of the office and the address of the weekly mansion that I was in and all this like five times over. And so I kept on making mistakes and having to cross them out and put the stamp and write the correction and, and stuff like that. That probably wasn't so bad for you. That bit wasn't so bad. That's true. Although my handwriting is absolutely appalling. Yeah. <laughs> my handwriting in English is appalling and then my Japanese is several times worse than that. So it's... Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Pretty sad. And you used to, because obviously when you moved here and you, you were six, you wouldn't have learned all the all the kanji, right? Right. So you you took lessons as well as coming to the school that you, you know, the same school that we were at together, which was from Monday to Friday. You went on Saturdays. That, that's right. To take extra that's lessons, right. right? All the way to London, in fact. So that's to uh, London. Wow. Yeah. So that's uh, another, I think, uh, an hour and a half to two hours, uh, one way to from. Uh, the good town of Banbury in North Oxfordshire, <laughs> all the way to London. And uh, yeah, so that was, uh, I guess, uh, for eight years. For eight years? Yes. Was that the whole time? That's right. During primary school as well? So I think it was the last two years of primary school, mm. and then three years of secondary school and three years of high school. So I actually did the full graduation thing. When you say secondary school, do you mean like middle school and the Japanese Middle school, school, that's right, yes. So did you, were you, even while you were doing your A-levels, yes. were you still going to? Yes. Wow. Yeah, so it was uh, a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say wasted, but uh, spent Saturdays. Right, yeah. No, because I remember sometimes we would have like, we'd want to have sleepovers on Friday nights or, sometime, or something, but you had to leave really early so you could get to London right. to study. <laughs> but I, I was never really that aware of what you were doing i don't think it was only afterwards when i you know i put the effort into learning to write and i was like oh yeah yeah to be honest i mean i am not uh, regretting the time that i spent learning that stuff because i use it very much not actually i don't use it so much now but i it, it really did help when i was in japan mm. but i have to say eight years you know every saturday is uh, a fair bit of commitment yeah but i imagine you know uh we have kids uh then uh the question is whether we subject them to the same ordeal. If you end up having kids abroad again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, I, I feel like, I feel similarly, right? It it seems like it would be such a shame if we had kids, like, for me to be able to read Japanese and them not to. That seems like it would be like, weird. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's true. But <laughs> well, what if they could read Japanese better than you could? Well, I, sh- I should hope they could. Okay. Because they weren't you know, 25 when they started. Oh, that's true. So, <laughs> yeah, if they can't, I'd be a bit 
disappointed. I think I think if they could, even when they could, I would be jealous. But <laughs> it's it's a complex story. I suspect if you're jealous of your children, then you've probably done well. That's probably a good sentiment to have, right? Mm-hmm. So going back to Japan and the fun and the incredible craziness of it all, the, the thing that really, really got me angry, I wouldn't say angry, I guess, but uh, somewhat perked up uh, <laughs> was the fact that, uh, so in Japan, there are two fairly important documents, the Koseki Tohon, mm. which is the registry of your existence pretty much with the uh, government. Right. I think it usually translates as family registry right, into, right. into English. Yes, I, I think that makes sense. And it, it really is a family registry in the sense that it, you know, your, your existence is basically tied up to the fact that you are either the head of a household or a member of it. A member of it, I guess. Yeah. And then there's the Jumin Toroku, mm. which is the registration in the locality that you are living in. Right. And um, both documents come into play quite often in almost every situation of life. Mm-hmm. I think you have to have both in a, when you're opening up a bank account or something. If you're Japanese. If you're, if you're Japanese. Just for, for the sake of completeness of your foreign, you do get a Jumin Toroku, I think, but you don't get the uh, Koseki Toho. Instead, you have you used to have a Gaikokujin Torokusho, which is a, a foreign foreigner's registration card. And now you have something else. I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a, a residence card, essentially. I see. Anyway, sorry, carry on. The interesting thing is that I already have a Koseki Tohon because I was born in Japan. Mm. It was registered in uh, Sapporo, Hokkaido, because I was born there. Mm-hmm. You can always go and pick that document up from where you are registered, which is, for me, Sapporo, Hokkaido, right. about uh, three hours plane ride away from Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Or you can have it sent to a address where you have a valid Jimin Torok. Right. So you've registered with the local government body. Mm-hmm. Now, to register with your local government body... I think I know where this is you going. Need, <laughs> you need a Koseki Tokon. <laughs> so for a week, I was calling these two government entities up and telling them, hey, this is my situation. Is there anything? Right. And they, they were basically telling me, well, if you do this, if you do that. And in the end, it turns out that you can get your immediate family up to your grandparents mm. to request it on your behalf. And if they have a valid Jimin Toroku, mm. then the Koseki Tohon can be sent to that address. Oh, I see. And very luckily, I had my grandmother still in Tokyo. So, so they, so in, yeah, and she's that's your grandmother on your mother's side, right? That's right. Oh, that's sort of interesting because the your father's side is is the Sapporo side. Yes, I suppose it's not really relevant which which side it is because it's just you your registration. But the, the Koseki Tohon is originally like that line that it represents is actually a Sapporo line. Yes, right? that, that's right. Which isn't yeah, no, that's true. I wonder what happens if. For example, my mother had remarried and right, but you you still exist as the relation between your grandmother yes. and that document. Yes, I suppose. So, right. Yeah, interesting. So the, another interesting uh, fact about the the Koseki Tohon is that marriage in Japan is defined as moving from one. Koseki Tohon to another, right? Yes, although I think in many cases you n- create a new Koseki Tohon. 
So when I got married uh, very recently, mm. I moved out from the Tokyo, uh, the Sapporo Koseki Tohon, mm. created a new one in Osaka for some reason. Uh, <laughs> and then my wife moved to that Koseki Tohon. To that one. Oh, that's interesting. I did. Okay. So no, Koseki. congratulations, by the way. Thank you very much. Because uh, I think this is, might be the first time we've actually spoken properly since you got married. Um, so that is actually what I was about to say, but I didn't realize that was relatively common with, with Japanese people. Oh, really? My understanding is that you generally, one person moves to the other, and that's part of the reason why it's impossible for married couples to continue to have a different surname. The man can take the woman's surname or the woman can take the man's surname, but they can't have a different surname. But another quirk of that is that in in my case, in our case, right. I didn't have a Koseki Tohon, but my wife wanted to take my name. And the options were I could sort of... Actually, I, I can't be registered on one, so whatever happens, I'm like a, a footnote on the document. But what ended up happening was that my wife had to create a, a new one, which was the very root of the right family line <laughs> wow. in japan but you're still not on it i think i think i'm on it but as a footnote i i don't because I, the way you put it right at the very beginning i thought it was was interesting it's like registering your your presence with the japanese government right yeah but my presence is like i, I don't really have a presence at least as a citizen because i'm not one sure right? sure so I don't, I don't have one. I think I might be mentioned as a sort of in the notes section where it's because, because usually it would mark her name with, this is, you know, so-and-so and she's married to so-and-so, yep. but in the slot where the, she's married to so-and-so, but they can't put me because I don't sort of exist. <laughs> so they have to put a note saying, this guy's not a real person. He's British. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, Japan. So anyway, this is a very interesting system. But I think that understanding a little bit about, and I don't claim to sort of deeply understand all these things, but that a little bit about how these systems works makes some things, I think, clear in, in a way that's quite interesting. So for example, that thing I mentioned earlier about not being able to keep different names when you get married. Right. I understand that that is a source of some contention. And even within Japan, there's, you know... Politically, there's there's a lot of people arguing that that should be fixed. That in this day and age, there are plenty of manu married couples who want to each keep their own surname. And I, I think in many cases, people have started to, you know, ha have a koseki where you know it's listed that the uh, wife's official surname is the same as the husband's, mm. but they continue to use. Uh, different surnames. I think that's becoming increasingly common. Right. I think, yes, that is happening. But there is a lot of there are a lot of situations in which you're not allowed to do that, where you have to use your officially registered name. Right. Uh, I think opening a, a bank account is one of them. Yes. Also, if you work, I don't know how it is when you work for a company, but if you work for like a, a government institution, like a school or something like that, they're very strict about you have to use the name that you're registered with. That, that makes sense. And I think I agree with the principle that the law should be changed and it should be possible to do that. But given the way the system works, you sort of begin to appreciate, like, it's not as simple as just saying, okay, you're allowed to have different names now. 
because it actually requires you to rethink this entire structure yeah. of family registers, which has existed for however long it's it's been. Probably, has it been going for 100 years? Is it the same system or is it more modern than I think it is? I would think that it predates the war. Right. So, yeah, probably at least 100 years. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I don't know, it's it's not as simple as it may first sure. appear. To be honest, I think that's the case with a lot of things in Japan, where so many things are interdependently built on top of each other in such an intricate way. Right. And, and you know, it, it actually kind of sort of works. So right. to take one bit and say, hey, this doesn't make sense and try to change it, modernize it, is really not that trivial. Right. And they've been saying this for about 30 years. Yeah. And I think there does come a point where, like, if it's that intertwined that it's impossible to change and it gets more and more out of date, that's that's obviously problematic. At some point, you want to be able to move right. with the, the way the world is changing. Because right? I think uh, one of the interesting linkages or uh, metaphors, I guess, uh, it is uh, with software, right? Mm. I mean... Someone once told me that, you know, you shouldn't write reusable software. You should write software that is easy to delete. Ah, yes, indeed. I have I have encountered that adage as well. It wasn't me that told you that, was it? No, I don't think so. I think I, okay. <laughs> I, I, think I saw that on the internet. Okay, fair enough. That was actually a big part of the principle of the way that when I first went to Japan and, and joined Vitae, the way the, the engine was structured the you know the the games engine that we used was basically structured around that principle right. where it was it had its problems but one of its benefits was that it was definitely built around this idea of each individual thing whether it's an object in the game or a sort of subsystem was it had a script associated with it and it had no real link to the outside world. I see. And that caused quite a lot of problems because there's quite a lot of kind of copying and pasting of code and and things like that that we had to do because it wasn't possible to, there wasn't a proper module system and it wasn't possible to reuse this code from this other area, for example. Uh, So it was definitely, you know, not without its problems and we did end up moving away from that model, but it did have the advantage that you could take any system or any menu or any screen or whatever it might be. And if you wanted to, you could very easily just toss the whole thing again away and remake it. Right. And it wouldn't be that huge an ordeal. Yeah. And uh, the reason why I think that kind of makes sense is, you know, looking at a intricate and, you know, interlinked and, you know, very well crafted system like the Japanese uh, society Mm. (laughs) or Japanese society I I think that there comes a time when all of that stops being able to get modified and the ability to adapt to change uh, outside change is a very important part Uh, it's probably the most important part I think in when you think about uh, designing a system right right and uh, yeah so both software and society should probably be written so that you can rip bits off and throw it away and start afresh relatively easily. Mm. That's interesting. Although, having said that, I must say one thing I've noticed since coming to America is here there are a lot more independent moving parts. So you've got the federal level and the state level, and then you've got like the DMV and the Social Security Office and all these different groups. Yep. And... 
and none of them have any real relation to each other as right. far as I can tell. Right. Yeah. And that, that creates a, a lot of redundancy yep. because they don't, they don't really share information and they don't work together. So you have to sort of send each entity the same sorts of details again and again. And if these entities ever need to communicate with each other, it always takes ages because sure. you have to keep checking up and making sure that this one has spoken to this one. And, that, you know, and I think that is, that makes sense in the context of the way that sort of America works, but it's very different from my experience, both in Japan and the UK, which tend to be a little more centralized. Right. right. And I can't say that it's a great improvement <laughs> in my experience. That's that's very true. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, and maybe it's true that as a result of this uh, discreteness and this separation between the different groups, it does make it easier for them to adapt to change. America historically certainly has more of a reputation for for changing and moving with the times than Japan does. You're still playing Go, right? I am. I am slightly more of a casual player than I was before. Last year, I was playing a fair bit more. I actually started, I didn't start, uh, but I kind of rekindled a Go club in the uh, local vicinity. And uh, Oh, cool. Yeah, no, I was uh, playing every week. Was that in where you are now on the East Coast? Yes, that's right. Right. And, and then things happened, I got married various things and I, I think i kind of it's kind of lapsed a little so i may play mm. a couple of times a month still a couple of times a month is it's a lot more than i'm playing at the moment. right we used to play together you got me into go i think not all that long after you'd started playing it that, that's i think i think that's right maybe three or four months oh as as soon as that and that was when was that when we were in oxford or was that before then i think it was just before uh, i think it was before just before I moved to Oxford. Mm. Oh, just before you moved to Oxford. So yes. I was already there. Yes, yes, you were. Yeah, because I remember going to the, the board game shop in Oxford and buying a Go board and some stones. For those who aren't familiar with Go, I don't know. It's Go. I think since the AlphaGo thing, Go has become sort of much more widely known over here. It was already fairly well known, I suppose, amongst programmer types and geeks and stuff. And to be honest, even after AlphaGo, I'm not entirely sure if it's all that well known to non-programmers, non-geeks. Mm. It's one of those peculiar phenomenon where, if someone had heard of it, then they would have been interested in AlphaGo and they would have, you know, heard far more about it. And you know, some of them would have been interested to pick up the game. Right. And people who were never exposed to the name of Go. Mm. probably went on fine not ever hearing about the name of uh, name of the game yeah that's true although i mean the reason that AlphaGo thing i think did raise awareness a little bit it was it was just the next huge milestone after ibm's deep blue chess right success whenever that was 20 years ago or so yeah 1995 or six or something somewhere around there right yeah, 20 yeah years. So just over 20 years ago so go is in a similar sort of category of ancient games which involve laying pieces on a board black and white pieces and also involve both players having full knowledge of the state of the game and no randomness so in this way it's the same as as something like chess uh, or shogi which is essentially the japanese equivalent of chess 
but not quite the same as backgammon, which of course has dice rolling in it. And then poker, where you have randomness and hidden cards. And poker, where exactly you have randomness and you also don't know the, the state of everyone else's view of the game. So that makes it a, an interesting game for artificial intelligence to study because in, in theory, at any point, the artificial intelligence and all the players, anybody viewing the game can see the entire state and so come to a conclusion about what is the literally optimal way to play a game, right? And this has been done for simple games like Noughts and Crosses. Noughts and Crosses is another game where both players know the full state of the game at all times and there's no randomness. But the set of potential states in Noughts and Crosses is quite small, so you can enumerate every possible move from any point and you can say which is definitely the, the best move. Relatively easy, to be honest. It's uh, after a couple of uh, days of playing Northern Crosses, I think everyone kind of realizes how what the optimal uh, <laughs> path sequence is. It's, uh... That's true. But for, for both chess and Go... I don't think this has been done for chess either. A brute force search through chess? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. To get the actual optimal sequence? Yeah, no, I, I don't think that's... Uh... Chess has relatively few spaces on the board, but it has many moves that, that each piece can, can take. So there's a bit of a sort of explosive search space there. And in Go, there's really only one move per se which is to lay a piece on the board uh, other than to pass i suppose <laughs> um, but a standard go board is 19 by 19 spaces so which is 361 points so it yes 19 by 19 places where you can lay a piece so at any point you there are a number of different moves you could make in terms of putting the same piece in, in different places. And I think if you look at the the expansion of all the possible sequences of moves that could be made, the number of permutations of potential games that could happen is some outrageous number that is greater than the number of atoms in the universe, right. in the visible universe. Well, I mean, configurations of the Go board is basically, you have to prune it a bit, but it's three to the power of 361. Right. Which is a big, big number. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> yes. So, some of those, th uh, those are permutations of states, right? Yes, not, yes. not of sequences oh, of moves. Correct, correct. And right. there would be more... More potential sequences, because multiple sequences could arrive at the same state. Yeah. So, uh, yes. So it's basically impossible to search the, in the entire space. And there's a combinatorial explosion searching even just a few moves ahead of where you are now. So that makes it quite difficult to, to use traditional sort of brute force techniques to analyze the state of the board a few moves ahead. And that's what makes it an interesting problem for AI. And so the recent success of AlphaGo uh, versus, what was the name of of the player that Alphago beat? So it was initially Lee Settle mm. back in uh, 2016. So Lee Settle was, uh, for a decade before 2016, he was suddenly among the top three, four players. 
you could probably strongly argue that he was the number one player in the world. And Lisseto versus AlphaGo in 2016 ended, uh, the five-game match was four games to AlphaGo and one game to Lisseto. Mm. And that was uh, the first time that any AI had ever beaten a uh, very strong top professional level human player even once. Right. Yeah. And then not all that long after that, they made another version called AlphaGo Zero, I think. Well, yeah. yeah. So, so that was quite recent, actually. That was uh, probably end of 2017. Mm. But before that, there was AlphaGo Master. Oh, okay. Skipped one. Yeah. So, so there was AlphaGo uh, that beat Iseto 4 to 1, which is actually quite a surprising result because I right. uh, I think a lot of people expected that Lee Settle will win. Mm. Yeah, at that point, it was definitely unclear. Right. Also, I think a lot of people were surprised that it was a, there was one victory by Lee Settle if, you know, AlphaGo was strong enough to beat Lee Settle. Mm. It, it seemed like AlphaGo was strong, probably somewhat stronger than you know, even the top professional mm-hmm. on average. But given time, humans could beat it. Right. Yeah. And probably learn to beat it consistently. Mm. And then right at the end of 2016 and at the start of 2017, on the online Go forums, I guess, a player whose identity had been hidden mm. uh, by the name of Master mm. and Magist, I think, uh, on another board, arrived roughly at the same time and uh, kept playing blitz games with accounts that were known to be the very best Chinese, Korean, and Japanese professionals. Mm. And I think it basically had a 60-game winning streak (laughs) where it lost zero games Mm -hmm. to all of these top professionals in the world. Mm -hmm. And that was the point, I think, where we basically realized that, you know, the Go AI was just now just a completely different league to, to human playing right at, at the time of Lee Seto I think a lot of people were thinking well okay so this is the time that you know humans buckle up and right <laughs> you, you, you know we can go back and beat, beat the AI again and, and then uh right master comes and it's just what we need to do is I guess learn from from master and from the master I guess right yes I suppose it's sort of interesting that a lot of these developments they seem to sort of be reasonably slow to reach a certain point and then once they overtake that point they just seem to go so much quicker than anything else right so right. it took a very long time to get the point to get to the point where any machine could beat a professional human even once but then once it did like the next step up from there is not an incremental step forward it's like 10 times as good as the previous one right and right. so, you know, that, that's moving much faster than humans can catch up. Yeah. And then so AlphaGo Zero came out after that, and that sort of rediscovered the, the strategy of Go from first principles, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so both uh, the AlphaGo that beat Lee Sittle and AlphaGo Master mm. basically started by using human moves. So human games. They essentially did the same thing humans do. They studied famous games between actual human players, right? Precisely. Right. And basically said, okay, how do I recreate these moves? Mm. If I took a snapshot of a game at, you know, move 20, mm. how can I recreate 
the professional move 21. Right. Right. And that's the basis on which it starts. Mm. It tries and figures out how it can recreate move 21 from from game state 20. Right. And, and then starts self-playing with itself. Right. To explore other potential moves. Precisely. And then learns from that and says, okay, how can I recreate my moves, but in one step as opposed to after doing a extensive research. Right. And that's how it gets better. Mm. Whereas AlphaGo Zero has no human input. Right. They didn't feed into it all these historical games. Right. Instead, they just sort of told it what the rules were and then let it play against itself again and again and again and discover these strategies for itself. Right, right. So so if you look at the early stages of its training, you see it playing pretty much randomly mm-hmm. and terribly. You know, <laughs> in, in fact, it kind of it is kind of reminiscent of the really bad AI that you used to see. Right. I played a, a version of Go that was written for the original NES or the Famicom, which you can imagine how strong the AI was on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can kind of see maybe there's some logic to it, but frankly, you can just kill all the stones that they. Right. Puts down. And then from there, I think within 72 hours, mm. it was what they said in the paper, AlphaGo Zero reached full strength, or not full strength, but uh, strength enough that it would have beaten AlphaGo Master. Right. And did it, in in that journey that it took, because we've also, as humans, we've taken this journey of discovering Go strategy over hundreds of years. Right, People, humans as they are learning Go, they've studied the games of previous players, and they've also played and developed their own strategies. And they've the the game has evolved, and new as new strategies have been discovered, yep. as well as rule changes to do with how much advantage you get for playing first and stuff like that. But sure. never mind that. So, do you know if AlphaGo Zero? sort of discovered similar strategies and evolved in a similar way or whether it was just totally different? I think in general, it obviously the evolution path is not exactly the same. And I don't think that it mimicked human history too much. But it was definitely discovering things, concepts uh, that translate very closely to concepts that were discovered, you know, through history, mm. uh, through human history. Mm. So it would be hard, I think, have a map of human history and, uh, you know, a sequence of human discoveries and a sequence of AlphaGo discoveries and map them one-to-one. But I think there there are definitely strong analogies. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, as you mentioned, a human strategy has evolved a big part of human uh, strategy evolution has been based on the handicap. Right. So in Go, the player to go first is the black player. And because they lay the first stone, they almost sort of set the tone for the game. And so they get an advantage by, you know, being able to to choose that. And to make up that advantage, at the end of the game, when the score is counted up, the white player gets some extra points to make up for the fact that they had to go second. Now, I can't remember what those points are called. Commie. Commie. So uh, what is the standard now? Is it 6.5? Yes, I think so. So they, it's 0.5 so that there's never a draw, right? So uh, even if, if it would be a draw, you're either going to be 0.5 over or 0.5 under. Uh, but that has changed over time. That's right. So uh, historically, 
there was no commie. Mm. Basically, an equally matched pair of players would uh, play in turns. Mm. So one would take black and in one game, and then the other would take black in the other game. And right, and they would always play multiple games. Precisely. And right. based on a se- the sequence of wins and losses, you would decide you know who is the better player. Right. So did you always have to play an even number of games? Well, it, it's almost a artifact of Japan's long, peaceful Edo era mm. that... Basically, it wasn't like tournaments, right? Oh, I see. You played other people throughout your life. Right. And you're... So you're just keeping a running tally. Precisely. I see. There was never a cutoff. There were sequences of games that were like celebrated 30-game match between... Well, it didn't actually complete, but uh, Yuzo Ota versus uh, Koinbo Shizaku. Mm. Both uh, very famous players, and they played... They they sat down and said, okay, we are going to play 30 games. Mm. They ended up playing 15 or 16. They, it seems like they never actually finished these 30-game matches. But, you know, generally people do occasionally, for some reason, sit down and say, okay, we will play 30-game 30 uh, game sequence right. while playing other games with other people. Mm. In the meantime, it's not like they sit down and spend the whole year playing just this right. sequence. So, and that Honimbo, is that of... Is that related to the Honimbo tournament or is that a later? So the Honimbo was the most important house, uh, Go house in the Edo era. Mm. The shogunate sponsored four households mm. whose sole role was to play Go. Right. And they would vie for the position of Meiji. Right. Now, after the end of the shogunate and the Meiji restoration, the, this world view completely breaks down. Mm. And the Go players scatter. They you know, basically lose their big patron. Mm. The Honimbo household declines very, very rapidly. Mm. And then there's a bit of brouhaha and there's a bit of resurgence. And then they hand over the name of Honimbo to the tournament that is currently the Honimbo tournament. I see. Okay. So they weren't actually managing the tournament. No. They just passed over the name. That's right. It was a very big symbolic end of this continuity from from the Edo period. Interesting. So, and that brings us into sort of the modern era of Go in Japan, although Go is also very widely played in in China and Korea and has been historically. Yes. And indeed, in the past, certainly two to three decades, you could argue that uh, Korea and and China have uh, overtaken uh, Japan in how eagerly and widely displayed mm. and also in, in terms of its positions in the uh, uh, world tournaments right back in the 80s it was uh, very much a japan dominated thing and uh, i think in the 90s it was uh, a career on the ascendant and then uh, late 2000s to you know 2010 it is china and then korea is definitely a very well to be honest currently the strongest player i think is korean right well yeah highest rated well no the, the strongest player is it, yes is american <laughs> well it's, it's difficult to know if you can ascribe nationality <laughs> to a... it's owned by an american corporation yes um, so but that, so they had but they had a long history of go in china and korea yes. where they had that had they sort of they used to play it and then other games sort of you know japan kept it in the center and they played it less and then they started playing it again or was it just 
Is it a continuous history in each country? Do you know, or are you mostly aware of the Japanese? No, I, I do know that it's a continuous history in all, all three countries. But they, was there a point when, I guess, were they continuous but separate histories for some length of time until eventually they started playing against each other? Sure, it was uh, definitely separate to a certain degree. Uh, first of all, I think um, Go started in China. Right. And then I think uh, Japan, certainly by like the the ninth century or the eighth century, we have records of uh, Japan playing Go, I think. Mm. I, I, I'll have to check that. But when it started, you, you start with a 19 by 19 board and you have pieces already laid on the board, mm. right? Uh, and, and that's how I think it started in China. Oh, I see. And that's how it was uh, imported into Japan. Okay. And I think that had continued in China for a while. Mm. And for some reason in Japan, they stopped playing with those fixed, fixed stones relatively soon, I think. Hmm. And that led to a expansion of early game strategy. Right, yeah. So in that sense, I think that was a very interesting development that got re-imported into China. Oh, so they didn't independently discover that. that My started. understanding is that it was a reimportation from, mm, from... Interesting. Certainly, uh, it seems that the records show that the Japanese games had those stones removed much sooner. I, I, I think we have uh, games from the 17th century where there are Japanese records with without those stones and Chinese mm. records with those stones. So oh, it's, it's clear that you know Japan hadn't had them and uh, China did have them at the same time. Right. The thing is that while in China and Korea, I don't think they were necessarily celebrated as um, valid pursuits right. or uh, valid professional pursuits. Uh, whereas in Japan, for some reason, the, the shogun decided that it was something worthy of being sponsored. Right. And the, the government was paying professionals money them to be very very good at go right and in fact not only were they sponsoring professionals they were sponsoring four independent households who were all vying for for the right to be to be amazing right and and that really i think set into motion the flourishing of uh, japanese go that makes sense so by the end of the shogunate i think it was very clear that uh in this peaceful time of great sponsorship japanese go strength had become very, very, uh, I think it's safe to say, uh, stronger than other other countries. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that's not to say that, you know, the raw talent appears everywhere, right? And in Japan, in the early 20th century, to, through to the mid and late 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, we had Chinese and Korean players who came to Japan, studied with the Japanese players and became very, very strong. And then took that information back, perhaps? Well, um some of them did, but uh, Muslim stayed. Oh. Well, well, the two main names that I can think of stayed. Right. Uh, one was Gusegen, who was who, who is still considered, I think, one of the greatest players of all time. Mm-hmm. He was Chinese, and he came at a very young age to Japan to study. Mm-hmm. I think uh, when Gusegen was coming to Japan, there were talk of you know why are you bringing this prodigy from China to Japan? What happens if he beats all the Japanese players? And they said that you know that would be a very very good problem to have. Right. <laughs> and in fact that happened. And frankly, it's 
it's a great thing because his games are incredible. Mm. And then later on, Cho Chikun or Cho Chihun,、uh, I guess in in Korean,、mm. came, also came from, from from Seoul to Japan, and he was also I think the best player, or certainly. Among the top two for at least a decade, probably longer, twenty, thirty years. That's a name that's familiar to me as well. Is that in the relatively modern era? Yes, yes.、Right. Cho Chikun is probably nineteen seventy to nine.、Uh, well, he's still around. I mean,、mm. he is in fact playing、uh, Deep Zengo, which is a Japanese Go AI、mm. in a human versus professional tournament. Human versus professional. Sorry, professional versus AI. Professional versus AI.、Yeah. Tournament that's going on right now. So I mean, he is still an active player. Right. I've got a feeling I might have a fan with his signature. Oh I, yes, I, I thought when when I was with you. He, he writes very nice. <laughs> yeah. No. He he and and he is also an incredible player, and he was definitely certainly one of the top two players、mm. uh, of the world, which at the time meant in Japan. Right. So yeah, it, it's it's not to say that just because Japan during and after the Edo period seemed to have You know, an abundance of very strong players、mm. didn't mean that you know talent wasn't appearing elsewhere. Of course, and of course, from the nineties onwards, the emergence of Korea as you know the country that keeps winning and winning and winning international tournaments started actually with a Korean player who started learning in Japan and then moved back. I think、uh, Cho Hunhyun,、mm. and then his、uh, student whose name I have horrifically forgotten, <laughs> and then Lee Seto, you know, kept winning. A lot of tournaments, and and then now China is on the ascendant. We ha- they have a tremendous number of very very talented, very young players. So Kajie, who recently lost to uh, AlphaGo uh, Master,、mm. has been ranked number one or number two for the couple,、uh, past couple of years, and he is, I think, currently twenty or twenty one.、Mm. So yeah, it's,、uh, there, there are fantastic players in China and fantastic players in Korea. But then, actually, after a decade of、uh, hardship, I think、uh, Japanese players are also getting stronger. So yeah, I, I think the international go scene is becoming very, very interesting.、Right? Very good. So if after all this talk about the history of Go and and how AlphaGo has performed. If if anybody wanted to sort of get into Go, how would you recommend they get started? That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a. I mean, obviously you can you can buy a board、uh, and just start playing,、uh, but there are also a lot of apps for the、uh, for the iPhone and an iPad and so forth. Sure, sure. The one I use is called Smart Go, and that, that's as the AI. That's got I think an AI you can play against. It's got. A bank of like thousands of historical games that you can study, and I think it might support online play as well. There's one called SmartGo, which is the free version, and SmartGo Kifu, which is the, the full version. Right, right.、And、I'm not entirely sure of the differences, but I think the all the historical games are in the the full version. So yeah, that's quite good. And another thing you can do, which is you know you often see in newspapers in in Japan, in the same way that you get chess problems in newspapers here, you get Go problems, which present a sort of subset of the board, and ask you where is the correct place to to place a stone. Often in in the context of life and death, where you have a group that could potentially be killed within one or two moves, and you have to say where you would have to place the stone to kill it, or where you would have to place the stone 
to make it live. And there's a website with lots of those sorts of problems called goproblems.com, I think, or .net. So those are, are quite good for just sort of practicing the the very sort of basic foundational skills that are involved. Other than that, do you, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, the, I, I think um, in general, I would recommend playing and preferably playing with humans yeah, mm. as much as possible. A website that I think recently a lot of people have started playing on is, uh, especially beginners, is online-go.com. And uh, that allows you to do two things. It allows you to play um, real time. So in a fairly short period of time, you know, you might have one hour each to play or maybe mm. even just 30 minutes or, or longer. Or you can play correspondence games. So across many, mm. many days, you know, it, it'll often say you have to play one move every 24 hours or one move right. every 12 hours or right. X many moves. And uh, it has all sorts of, all sorts of uh, useful functionality, like you can say, okay, if the next move by the opponent is here, then automatically play this move. Oh, I see. You, know, okay. you can register moves ahead. So, you know, it's actually quite smart and allows you to play a lot of games. It's, uh, I recommend uh, OGS quite a bit. But I would say, though, that uh, when you are really, really starting out, it's probably best if you can find another player who will sit with you. Right. It's good if you can find someone who's also a beginner and who is also keen to learn and have fun with it because then you can play yes. against each other and you can sort of push each other on. I mean, I remember when we were first starting, Yeah. you know, we used to quite often get together in, in cafes and things and bring along a go board and, and play a couple of games. And uh, that's definitely the most fun. In fact, I've registered with a lot of these online go websites and I've, as I mentioned, I've got the app on my phone. But I find it quite unsatisfying to play using those systems. There's something nice about the tactile right. feeling of picking right. up the stones and laying them on the board and also looking at the other person yeah, I agree. You know, as you're doing it. <laughs> um, yes. Especially when you're both beginners. And so you're both making a lot of bad moves, but then you start to sort of see patterns and see mistakes. And you know, once the game's over, you can go back and say, oh, I should have played here and how would that have turned out and, and all of that. Uh, in terms of books, I think when you're first starting, you can just look up the rules on the internet, and that's fine. Yes. But the best book that I have that I have read that I keep going back to and wanting to sort of reread as I continue to lapse, not play Go for years at a time, and then decide <laughs> to play it again for a couple of weeks, is Lessons in the Fundamentals of Go. Right, right. By Kageyama. Kageyama. That's that's a superb book. I have it in both English and Japanese, <laughs> where it's called Amatopuro. Actually, so, so do I. I love his so. his way of writing. He's got a very entertaining, sort of irascible, uh, kind of gr almost grumpy old man kind of way that he yep. he writes about things. But he's is very enjoyable to read. Um, he's probably not for absolute beginners. You need to already understand the rules and to have played a few games. But you don't need to have played for that long to start appreciating some of the tips he gives in that book, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, yeah, so that's good. We should we should play sometime. The thing is, you've absolutely completely overtaken me because I've I've not played for that. <laughs> stopped really stopped playing properly over a decade ago. And even then I was already 
struggling. That was when I was I was secretary of the Go Society at my university. Very good. But I they they were all much more intense than I was, <laughs> and so they they soon overtook me and started beating me in every game. And so did you. Go uses a system similar to karate or something like that, where you start off with levels where you count down in Q, right? 25Q or 20Q or whatever. Yep. You count down until you reach one and then you go to first Dan and second Dan and so forth. And in Go, there's amateur Dan and professional Dan, right? A first Dan amateur is, is a very different thing from a, a first Dan professional. Absolutely. But I think at the time when I was still playing Go relatively regularly, I was still something like 18Q. So I was still very much in the kind of beginner uh, bracket. And since then, I've, I suspect I've only got worse. <laughs> How far did you get? Do you have a rough idea of your level? I mean, I know it's different in different regions and different online forums and so forth. I don't think I uh, ever reached Dan, unfortunately, pre uh, maybe five Q, four Q. Wow. God. Somewhere around there, I think. Dream of, of getting into single digits. <laughs> you, you know, I hope to, you know, I, I should say, you know, I have no excuses for well, <laughs> a couple of excuses, but uh, I, I should try and get to Dan level this year, I think. This year? Wow. This year. That is a target. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. The, the thing with Go, especially at the Q level, and it seems like if you can avoid silly mistakes and make mm. you know sensible moves that's generally enough to be beyond you know certainly beyond fourth queue you, you can definitely get to probably like second queue or even probably dan just by doing that which goes to show how tremendously hard it is to actually not be silly <laughs> yeah i i think i don't know what stage it is or whether it's the same for everyone but i still feel like I often, for me, it's often not a case of avoiding silly moves, but I'm still at the stage where I often just have no idea what to do. I see. Uh, see. And I think that's a real sort of point of difference. I don't know at which sort of cue level that tends to sort of shift. But when you move from like looking at the board and going, well, I just don't know where to start, to looking at the board and seeing a number of options and you might still make silly mistakes. You might miss something that means one option is a bad option, but at least you, you are selecting from a number of options that you've identified as opposed to sometimes, you know, I feel like I know what I want to play next and I'm making a move, you know, for some reason, but there are other times when I'm like, I don't really know what to do. So I'm just going to do this random. I see. see. And I, I would like to get past that stage, but the only way I'd do that, obviously, is by putting more effort into playing and and <laughs> studying more, and I'm not doing either at the moment. So, again, no oh yeah, maybe it's uh, oh maybe we can play a correspondence game and kind of talk through it as uh, as we play. Possibly, yeah. I mean, maybe that would maybe talking through it would work because I find like part of the reason I fell out of Go is that I began to find it a little bit demotivating losing all the time. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, there's a saying, lose your first hundred games quickly, because the idea that you you learn a lot from your losses. But 
you you really do have to persevere. Those hundred game losses are fairly demotivating yeah. losses, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. It's uh, it is hard to persevere with Go unless you are in a friendly environment where you know you can just right and you feel that you are progressing. Right, because that's the thing when you hit a wall and you're like, well, I just don't don't know how to get beyond this point. That, that that's very hard, right? Yeah. In fact, Kageyama talks about those walls occurring at a few specific points in, in your progress. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd like to get back into it again. Oh, maybe we can uh, set up a correspondence game and uh, we can just uh, talk through what the uh, what's going on. Yes. In fact, yeah. Maybe we should do that now. <laughs> <laughs>